Hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. And when was the last time you actually paid attention to your due diligence process or even thought about it, right? And today's guest, Jake Harris, is going to reveal why you should have a robust due diligence checklist and how to use it properly to get into commercial real estate because he kind of got his butt kicked in a recession a little bit and uh, he learned a few things. So we're going to talk about due diligence, such an important thing today. I want to give a shout out to Jake Wareheim via, he left us an, a review in iTunes for the podcast. This podcast is such a, an eye-opener. It's jam-packed full of knowledge and wisdom that I'm grateful for Michael and Garrett. Keep every episode exciting and inspirational. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that, Jake. Thanks so much. We did have a first deal maker I want to announce on the show. His name is Joseph Lee, and he closed his first deal. It was 68 units in Kansas, and he's gone on to close three more deals for a total estimated value of $26 million. That's the law of the first deal. And he credits the syndicated deal analyzer and the podcast for helping him navigate through those deals. So congratulations, Joseph. If you have done a first deal and you feel like you've been influenced by us in some way or fashion, let us know. Just send me an email at michael at themichaelblanc.com or reach out to us on social, themichaelblanc on all social channels as well. And if you do want to do your first deal and quit your job and you value mentorship, check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblanc.com forward slash mentor. Schedule a call with us and see if that's something that would be right for you. One of the only programs that guarantees results that you'll do your first deal in the first year or we'll continue working with you until you do. So we're just very confident in our process. And so check us out. We'd love to have a conversation with you. With that, let's bring on our co-host, Garrett Lynch. What's going on, Garrett? What's going on, Michael? So let's talk about due diligence. We haven't talked about that in a little while. And one of the complicating factors in these days is is that we have to put a deposit down. And sometimes the deposit is hard, which means that it's non-refundable at the signing of the contract, which we've resisted for a long time. And we have comp relaxed our requirements a little bit on that, but we, we do not relax on price and, of course, how we do due diligence except for the fact that if you're putting down $100,000, $200,000 or $1 million, deposit hard when you sign it, okay? It can't be the first time you see the property. So how have we adjusted our due diligence process accordingly? Well, you can get early access is one strategy. So where you get a, you get basically a free look and it's- Before it's, you-, before you uh, uh, Yeah, before you sign, mm-hmm. it's called an early access agreement. And so you can have, it's a legal- binding uh, contract that allows you to basically get into apartments prior. If you can get that, that's the best. And that, that'll allow you to just check things. But then a lot of times we haven't even gotten that. It's really market dependent. So I know like in Phoenix, they allow a lot more of those, but in our market, they allow less of them. And so if you can't get one, you want to be able to get access to something going in and you want to check major components that are going to really hinder you from moving forward on the deal. And the the biggest ones that I can think of right off the top of my head are like Federal Pacific electric panels. Those are faulty electric panels that cost anywhere from 1500 to 2000 to fix those. And on older buildings, you can find them. And that's a huge cost that you, you need to anticipate going into a deal. They don't trip and they'll cause fires in your building. The other is polybutylene piping. So polybutylene 
are a type of pipe that will explode and or cause holes throughout your whole property. You have to repipe the whole building, which is a tremendous expense and will kill a deal. Others that are less invasive, those I'd say those two are pretty big. Polybutylene is probably the biggest. And then aluminum wiring is something you want to watch out for. That's also a fire hazard. You may need to replace that. And then asbestos is another one that, that can be hazardous, although a lot of older buildings have them. You just want to make sure there's not a lot of exposure there. Yeah, I mean, typically we teach to not start spending money until you have it under contract and tied up. And that is generally the case. However, when you're playing at a little bit higher level like we are, we have to just, you know, break the rules a little bit. We got to get in there before we get on a contract, right? Because we're not putting down a half million dollar hard and we get in there and we discover all these things. So we get an early access agreement that allows the good. And that, that does force us to spend time and money before we have on a contract, which is, of course, a risk. If the if the seller does not sign the contract or whatever and we don't get the deal, we've just put a lot of time and, and money into the wind. But that's kind of something. Sometimes you have to you have to think about redoing. So in today's show, we got Jake Harris here. He has uh, really done investing on a very high level, having wholesaled and flipped literally hundreds of houses, and uh, going through the recession doing that, and then pivoting to commercial real estate. He has a book called Catching Knives: A Guide to Investing in Distressed Commercial Real Estate. And today we're going to really go deep on some due diligence stuff, so important. So let's get that in the interview with Jake Harris. Jake, welcome to the show today. Michael Blank, how are you, sir? So you got your butt kicked in the recession a little bit. Talk to us about that. What happened? So yeah, I like to start with that story as far as I was sitting on a street corner down in Tucson. I was crying. I was, I was actually praying. I was like, dear Lord, can I be worth nothing? And so what that was is that I was fixing up in uh, this Adobe house. And at that point, I was just so crushed emotionally crushed and crying, like literally physically crying. I had been broken as a person. And that house, that Adobe house that I was doing work on was the result of me having a goal of being a millionaire before 30. So I, I achieved that. I became a millionaire before 30. How'd you do that? However, through real estate, through flipping houses, through doing you know a process up, building a little portfolio of having some rental properties. And then Subsequently, I had the market going down. The girl I thought I was going to marry, we'd broken up. My brothers, uh, who had been living and working with me and helping me out, you know, said I was, I was an asshole. The whole aspect of my life was kind of falling apart. I was 75 pounds overweight. And so when I, I see that in that moment, in that time in which I was sitting on that street corner, and I'll give you even to rub salt in the wound is I had a portfolio of properties that were worth less than I owed on them because the market had gone down in that recession kind of time period. The girl, even though we'd broken up, she felt bad for me. And even though and I was hemorrhaging money, you know, I'd come in with 50,000, 75,000, $100,000 to buy out of these mortgages of these properties that were declining in value. And I ran out of money before I ran out of properties. So I'm left, I have no money left, I'm just trying to figure out how do I pay these bills in, you know, month in, month out. The girl told the new boyfriend that she had that she could hire me as a con or he could hire me as a contractor. So I'm doing this house remodel for the, the new boyfriend of the girl I thought I was going to marry. And I get to see every day because he doesn't know our previous relationship. 
And so every time they come to the house to do a walkthrough, to update, to do the other things, it's my heart. And this is my first kind of real heartbreak kind of moment in, in my life, in my 20s. And it's just absolutely eating me up. And I'm putting myself in that situation because I'm so hard up for money that I need to figure out how to do things. And that's when I was like kind of broken, sitting on that street corner going, dear Lord, can I be worth nothing? It was better than negative. Yeah, better than negative. Nothing. Zero would be awesome. Can I start over at zero? And that's kind of where, although my journey does not start at that point, I feel like it really became a defining moment of my life was I had to go bounce around the bottom. And trial and error is an amazing teacher, but is actually the least effective as far as way to learn. Wisdom is learning from other people's mistakes. Well, that's and ideal. I, I mean, I, I was like you. I had apparently... I had to work, you know, I had to make my own mistakes uh, to, to a large degree instead of learning from other people. What, what were some of you said was a defining moment? How did that experience change you? So when I sat down there, like I said, I was bankrupt in every aspect of my life. And least importantly was money. Overweight, wasn't living, doing bucket list adventures, not doing, you know, these things. And so what I did was that rock bottom allowed me to foundationally and incrementally start building up. And I mentioned it earlier that goals and goals are great for one-time success. Systems are for those that want repeatable and predictable success. And so what I failed at was not having any systems. I just had a goal of becoming a millionaire before 30. And once I achieved that, I kind of didn't do much else. And so it was like, oh, how do I actually start developing some systems? And so that rock bottom allowed me to look at the things that I did well the things that I didn't do well at, and then start building. And it's been a journey. I mean, this has been, you know, decade, you know, plus, you know, uh, since the subprime meltdown of 08, you know, so another key book during that time period was Tim Ferriss's four hour work week was so foundational to, and it's not, and then you guys have, you know, likely read it and a lot of your reader or your listeners have likely read it. It's not about working a four hour work week. It's how do you 10 X what you're doing? And so that was the foundational knowledge that I then took from that next rock bottom and started systematically. And I, I went back to school and got a, a master's degree in international real estate and finance. I started like, I became part of you know, the go abundance, how, how, a group of people that were just doing bigger and better things. And it was like, man, I just, I didn't know what I didn't know. And that was at least that reset was that component for me to start building the foundation of the next iteration of my life. So you kind of started like over almost, you get like a, a hard reset with some wisdom and some scars behind you. So what did your second half look like? Yeah, I like that as a as a good explanation, a hard reset. But it was it was now figuring out I'd had a little bit of knowledge base of what I wanted to do in the future. And so that allowed me to start systematically. Obviously, 09, you know, the market was in free fall. I started flipping. Well, it used to be they call them family offices now, but it used to be a rich guy. You know, it was a rich guy that had a bunch of money. And so I was willing to go be the resources and the trenches. And so we put together and we started flipping a lot of properties. And I ultimately did, I don't know, 12, 1300 flips in 23 states. We aggregated them and put them into single family rental portfolios. We sold them off to institutional investors. But at the end of the day, doing all of those transactions added a lot of skill sets to me 
But it was at the end of it, you know, we made all this money for all these other people. And we sat down and we're like, we don't have real estate. I was actually at uh, uh, dinner with Ken McElroy a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, he did the same thing in the nineties with condos. He, he bought apartments, condoized them, did thousands of these transactions, made lots of money in that time period. And then at the end of the day, had no assets. And so for me, it's been an evolution of my own journey. While I did make a lot of money in, in, in transactions during that time period, it was like, how do we get real wealth? And that is really from the passive income and creating and investing into things and things like that, what you guys are doing, investing into multifamily or commercial assets that you're owning for a long term. And so that is even in my evolution of that 2.0 version was creating momentum of cash on a hamster wheel that in, then is now graduated into putting into more apartments and office buildings and, and commercial buildings and, and other things to start producing the cash flow of passive income. I mean, there's a case for both. Right? One is kind of the cash generation, which is the house flipping, and then there's the actual cash flow and wealth generation uh, engine. And there was a guy I interviewed a little while ago who was basically flipping apartments in LA. So he would go and gut these and, you know, a 12 unit would make a million dollars because the cap rates are so low. And he would take the million dollars and buy a strip center in Texas, you know, that served Latino. That was his entire strategy. He had like two companies, you know, as long as you realize what they're each doing, right? Because, I mean, I flipped not as nearly as many as you did, but I flipped like three dozen houses and make great money. But there was nothing passive about flipping houses, as you know. And so you were starting to see the kind of the insanity of it, but you you were doing kind of this, you were doing it at the same time, and then you shifted into commercial property. Like, what did you start doing then? How did you start investing in commercial? You know, really, it was at first I thought I was uh, I was not smart enough to be able to do these bigger deals. I didn't really know anybody else doing those. You know, even from the the fact that. You know, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I, I hung out, you know, during some of those times of subprime, but I just didn't know anybody that was doing commercial deals. And it wasn't, and, and what, and I, I feel fortunate or blessed that now there's a lot of people that I do know doing this. There's a lot of people that now offer education programs. Part of the reason I went back to school was because I didn't even really know, like, how did I build out a pro forma? How did I get into some of those deals? What are those toggles that you can do to extract and, and, and add additional value? And it was a lot of self-doubt mindset, you know, overwhelm of just not knowing which way to go. And so I was able to start sequencing and putting things together. I worked for a commercial construction company. The reason I worked for a commercial construction company was you know, I was able to find out what things cost. So that construction-based knowledge is now I knew what things cost. I knew what some of these and what that extrapolated in a pro forma to kind of moving forward. And, you know, really it, it had to be that belief in myself that I could do this. And initially it was those houses that I thought the hundred or $200,000 house was safe. And what I you know, subsequently, and maybe it's just the benefit of hindsight and doing this is I wish I would have done it earlier. I wish I've done bigger deals sooner. And, you know, again, that is, you know, I got into syndicating, putting together deals, getting collectively the vision of here's where this building, we can go buy it and we can fix it up and do a value added proposition. And then, and that's what's been over the last seven years is, is layering that benefit. I use a lot of data aggregation and we started investing into Texas heavy. You know, I wish I would have bought a lot more in Austin, 
Um, you know, we have an apartment that's just being finished, being built right now. Uh, so we did some development again from my background of, of construction that made sense to me. And so we're just finishing up an apartment building. We'll be 12, 13 million into it. It's probably going to be worth 23. I love that. And I, one of the things that I just thought about was you're like, you know, we went into Texas, we went heavy and there is an inherent benefit from going deep into a market versus trying to pick properties all over it. I've done both. I've the first, my first business, I was in 10 markets with 3,400 apartments and we had some success, but we had some failures too. And I think a lot of that was inherently just, I didn't really know. I didn't go deep in a specific market because I didn't think that there was enough inventory and you need a combination of inventory and, and then, then deal flow and a rising economy as well to make things work. But I'm just curious how important has that been to you as far as understanding your market and maybe talk about how you use that to your advantage? I think location is very, very important. The depth of your knowledge of the market is, you know, can be beneficial or, or negative. There's a lot of markets that are changing over. And when I say that is core markets or primary, secondary, tertiary, each one of them has different pros and cons related to them. And the the actual definition of what is a secondary market or tertiary market is somewhat ambiguous and it, you know people define it in different ways. But what I look at is I call this like the mafia rule. If there's typically in secondary and tertiary markets, there's five groups or five families that essentially own like 80 or 90% of all the real estate in those markets. And what you have is you have the ability to come in and find opportunity in existing markets that those five families don't do or their legacy knowledge is. And, and when I'll give you an example of this is like you come in and buy an apartment building for $10 million. They go and they go, I can't believe someone's paying $10 million for that apartment building. I owned it and I sold it for 1.5 million. Like to them, that seems like such a crazy because they're so close to it that they're like, I can't understand how it is. But you look at that is like, that's a, a 200 unit apartment complex for $10 million where you're like 50 a door, uh, at, you know, $50 a square foot all day long. Obviously that's changed a little bit in multifamily as every Tom, Dick and Harry is chasing down a multifamily deal. And so there's no golden, you know, secret markets that exist that aren't having people come in. But that's what I mean about the depth of market knowledge. And then I would map out where those investors are investing into. Some of them don't do apartments. I think that, um, you know, th then there's the phenomenon where you actually become one of the five families or you think you do when you're in the market and you're like, man, I just like, we got in, we got in Huntsville, like right before it just took off. And now every deal is like tripled where, where you were. And then, you know, you start to like evolve into other areas of the market. But I, I think for us, it's been such a tip picking one and, and just knowing it really in a block by block basis and understanding kind of, I love, I love getting real granular on the economics of what's coming, like where these new employers are, are coming in and trying to predict how that's going to affect the sites and, and things like that. So I'm sure you've done it. You've done a bit of that as well. You're correct. That having that micro niche detailed knowledge is beneficial and you can extract a little additional value. Blackstone was a perfect example of being macro correct. Where I was micro correct and I was, I could get down and I could save you, you know, 
10 cents a linear foot on baseboards and we did it in these markets and we sold these properties to them at a, at a premium of what today's pricing was. They were making a macro bet on the economy as a whole and that the whole entire industry and all asset prices were going to go up. And so they were you know, making a $10 billion bet and then they doubled their money. And so they made $10 billion profit. I was micro correct and I made, you know, hundreds of thousands or into the millions of dollars. So it depends on the capacity of what you can play. And I, I, that's why I say, I wish I got a big, you know, or bigger sooner was because you can now start making those bigger bets that you can be. And if you have, you know, you're convinced on your investment thesis overall, and that's where I, I talk about even in the book is defining what is your investment thesis and your plan. Some people it's just cash flow. I want to buy this and flip out of it in 12 months. Well, that's going to be a different, you know, lens in which you're going to look at to an investment criteria versus I'm going to buy this and own it forever or 50 years or 10 years or five years. You're going to look and structure your deal differently. And then the different demographics of that market are going to have different benefits to you versus Amazon announcing a new facility or, you know, Google coming in. At X, Y, and Z. And so the, the frenzy enough and all of those have different dynamics at play and then have teeter tottering effects to then, you know, you evaluating your deal. I like playing in front of the institutional investors. And when I say that is just a little bit ahead where I think there's enough evidence that I can understand that the, where a market is moving from in, but the institutional, you know, private equity groups, they need like 10 comp sets of them to then say, okay, now I can justify this. I only need one or two. I'm going to go do that hard work before they get there, go assemble them. And then I can sell them off with a pretty picture and a bow on it at a four cap or five or whatever your market cap rate is. If you want to work with a full-time syndicator to help you get up to speed faster, get your first deal done this year and scale your portfolio so you can quit your job, then check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. It's the only program out there that actually guarantees results. That's right. We actually guarantee that you do your first deal in the first year. Otherwise, we'll keep working with you. And set up a, a strategy session call and explore whether it's right for you. It's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. You mentioned your book. I love the title, Catching Knives. That's a title of your book. It's a guide to investing in distressed commercial real estate. Why did you uh, write that book, Jake? Well, so as I wrote it during the pandemic in 2020, you know, I was like, this is it. This is the time. Jake has a lot of skills about buying distressed assets. This is going to be amazing. It's my time. And then all the real estate values tripled. So the government went and printed a lot of money and maybe they kicked the can down the road to win the, the uh, need for uh, buying distressed assets is more value. But the, the core principles of the book are about how do you make an investment into commercial real estate and systematically build out your structure. Oftentimes you're doing research on a property or a market before the opportunities present themselves. You're assembling your team. And here's the other thing, the more that I've done real estate now, 20 years as a professional investor, the less I realize I know I'm less and I'm like, there's so much information that's available out there. It's assembling a team and getting a lot of experts. I don't practice say, practice real estate law, but I have real estate attorneys. 
I don't, I'm not a building engineer expert. I've seen lots of buildings, but there's guys that know that mechanical system way better than I do assembling and putting together that team. And so that's why the process of how you can buy distress is you're going to have limited amounts of information. Sometimes you're going to have to do the work and homework ahead of time. So when that opportunity does present itself, you're ready to strike. And specifically around the commercial real estate world is you may only have an opportunity once a generation with a single family house, when you're making a thing that tower that office building downtown, it traded last time when the RTC days, when the REITs fail and Sam Zell was, you know, outbidding people and it hasn't traded in 30 years since then. And so when that happens and you're like, I really want to invest into this market, you may need to be prepared and it may only be a small window of time. And so that's what you have to do and, and be prepared to take this calculated risk. It sounds like you're looking for a, a recession and you didn't get it during COVID. Like what's your, what's your outlook now? As it sounds like you want the world to be ready to, to strike when the iron is hot. You know, we're actually leaning more into hospitality right now. I think there's an opportunity in an environment when there's so low yield on many, many of the, you know, trophy asset classes, industrial, you know, multifamily and others. There's very limited amounts of, of return and especially in a rate, you know, increasing in uh, interest rate increasing environment. And so we're going in and we're leaning into the hospitality space, roadside motels and hotels where we can go buy them at eight, 10, 12 caps. We can revamp them, get rid of the franchise flag. And then we're doing, and, and actually I've been helping a lot of people get in doing due diligence on other types of commercial deals on some of these secondary and tertiary markets that ha this is the first time they've ever seen appreciation or rent growth ever, you know? And when you're looking at Ohio in an industrial building, this is the first time they've seen rent growth, you know? And so what does that look like? How do you start underwriting that? How do you look into the due diligence? And so and that's why I go back to that point of the calculated risk is rule number one is don't lose money. Rule number two is see rule number one, you don't want to go backwards. Mailbox money is fantastic, but not at the risk of losing your mailbox. Yeah. Due diligence is so important. And I, I know you, you you talk about it a lot. Why Why is that so important, number one. I mean, I mean, the obvious question is you don't want to you don't want to buy wrong. You don't want to make a mistake. And so maybe to talk about why is is what are some of the mistakes that you see people make, you know, when they're pursuing multifamily or commercial property, and and what are some of the things that that you want to make sure the audience takes away from uh, doing due diligence? Yeah, I think that is, I mean, it's a very big question. I use a checklist, and I actually, you know, if, if walked people through this as a course kind of thing is like a checklist. Why do I use a checklist? The same reason a pilot uses a checklist, the same reason that a surgeon uses a checklist is the downside risk is so significant on a plane or surgery, someone might die or you might crash into the side of a mountain or something like that. I'm not saying you're going to die buying an apartment building or buying an industrial center, but you may actually be like me crying on the side of the road, wishing to be worth nothing. And so when I look at that is I go and I systemize these things is looking at all of the potential items, especially while you're in escrow, when you control a property is you, what your goal is, is to eliminate all of these things that are risk to your deal. And I find that so many people just jump into deals because they hear that's what they should be doing that they don't check all of the boxes. And then when they close, they hope that nothing goes wrong. There's components specifically around like environmental 
there's things that you can do and there's properties that I know of. And, and here's one of the, the interesting you know, components is if you buy something that's contaminated, a dry cleaner, a gas station, or previously it was a dry cleaner, a gas station, or neighboring property contaminated, you buy it, guess what? The owner of that is now on the hook to do the cleanup. Not the previous owners, the person that owns it right now is responsible. And you may be into a multi-million dollar environmental cleanup that takes you 10 years. And so there's times, there's some property that you could give me for free, zero dollars that would cost me millions of dollars. And so when I look at that is like, why would you go down this checklist of like, did you get a phase one done? If there was a phase one, did you, and there was something coming up, did you get a phase two? Did you check on those? Because that may prevent you from selling or financing that property in the future. And you're like, well, I got seller financing or I got a really good deal is half of what it sold for before. The environment can change as people and cities and municipalities are now pushing for more sustainable and you know the access that they have as information is all of these things are coming more to the surface. And, and also specifically around industrial buildings, you have no idea what they buried under there previously. And that's why you need to go through these systems because to, you know, the downside is you get completely wiped out. So I'm, I love this uh, topic in general, because you you've, I've seen people, I've known people that have gone into a deal and they just didn't understand the full scope of the construction that, that exists on whatever they're buying. And they get screwed because they, they go in with too light of, of CapEx and they don't, they don't understand what they're getting into. So I'm curious, one of the tougher things to diagnose and to figure out is, is plumbing on older properties or whatever. And how do you kind of go into that part of your due diligence to figure it out? It's, it's kind of an unknown often. You can scope lines, you can do this or that, but there could be an unlimited amount of issues there. And then, you know, heating and air too. That's why... You know, I've actually done some destructive inspections. Like we cut open walls. I was wondering about that because you you actually go in and cut into walls. Yeah. Well, we've talked to the sellers and say, "Hey, asbestos or lead pipe or you know all these other things could be very significant challenges to us. So we'll cut open the wall. We'll fix it. We'll repaint it. We'll do these other things. We've removed windows on historic buildings that we needed to get through. We're going to go dig holes to test out the you know." dirt and the contamination due to soil conditions. And so part of this is like, and here's the big thing that a lot of people don't understand is commercial is buyer beware is because there's a lot of disclosures around residential real estate. Commercial, it is like, they just assume you know what's going on. And if you buy something, here's one of the other big components is a, and a lot of commercial real estate, you're buying the cash flow that it's producing. You're not, you know, the building or the structure and industrial, but the finances of the tenant, especially on like a strip center you talked about or industrial center or manufacturing facility, the financials of that tenant are more important than the actual physical asset that are more important. And so how long? And so they're like, oh, the tenant's been there for 18 years. They only have two years left on the the lease. Of course, they're going to stay, you know, but did you actually do due diligence? And why is that seller now selling? you know, this 10 cap, you know, building with two years left on the lease. And to, so me, my always the spidey sense or the, the, the tinglys on the back of my, my neck is like, what do I not know? This person has 
passively been investing into this. They're just cashing these checks for years over after years. And now they're like, you know what? It's just too easy. I don't want to continue to cash these checks. Let me get out and give it to some guy from Georgia or California or wherever else. I think we talked about the importance of due diligence and having systems and checklists. And I think that's super important because, you know, a lot of buyers, they, they are cutting corners. They're very eager to do a deal and they really don't want to know what's going on. And like you said, they hope that it, it doesn't happen. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Although on the, on the flip side of that is if you're too thorough and you're too careful, you never end up doing a deal. I have said in my experience that very rarely is there a no brainer. Like, you know, very rarely is like, my gosh, there's no way I can screw this up. There's always something that bothers me about a deal. There's always some risk, something I don't like, something I need to somehow mitigate. And if if I don't, then I'm never doing a deal, right? So it's, it's I want to see what your, your feedback is on yes, due diligence, but let's say you discover something that you don't like. Does that mean that you automatically walk from the deal? Does that mean you try to, in other words, how do you, what's your mindset like to basically accept risk, mitigate it, and still do deals while still following your checklist? I think that's a great question as far as, you know, analysis paralysis. I've heard that. I've had lots of investors come to me and just be like, they they freak out. They have a fear of that unknown. You're never going to have 100% of the information you're never and so you have to make decisions based on imperfect information and you know a, a certain percentage the checklist for me allows me to systematically go through and the 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 big items you know if, if there was something contaminated well then that may cause us to dive in a little deeper is that a half a million dollar issue that we need to mitigate and remove the dirt and take it out there so that may stay, change the structure in which the deal terms that I currently have are. And is this now that I'm aware of it? There's, I interviewed uh, someone recently. They were a, their friend was a programmer, a developer with Amazon. And Jeff Bezos talks about this. He said, what Amazon was looking for is two way doors, not one way doors. And so what that means is, a one-way door are things that you go through is you can't go back. You close on that property. You can't unclose on that property if something goes wrong. And so you have kids, you have kids. Like, you, you know, there's not going back. Yeah, you know, I don't like it. I, I have three kids. I love my kids. I'll have as many kids as my wife lets me. But it's also, you're on the other side of this. And so what, and, and the two-way door is you get an opportunity to go through it check to see what's on the other side. If you don't like what's on the other side, you can just go back out to that. And so you're looking for an asymmetric risk profile. And, and I mentioned that earlier, taking calculated risk. So then you have to understand the, the brackets of what are the potential ramifications of this thing that I don't know about and that downside risk. When you're in escrow, and this is one of the things that's really unique to real estate, is you have a free option. You have tied up a piece of property and what you're trying to do is eliminate all of those risks. And if you believe now I've eliminated or got a significant portion of the risk solved for, and I still like this deal, I can close on it. If I don't like, I find out that there's contaminated or the rents aren't what they are or the you know appliances are not what they're baked out and the OM is not accurate, I'm out. I walk away. And that's hard for a lot of people, and especially early and new investors to do. 
is to find out that wrong information, but it's much, much worse to close on the property and now you can't go back out. So you have to use those time periods when you have that two-way door and that opportunity, that asymmetric risk. Like you want that deal to be like, I have 80% or 85% confidence that this is going to be a great deal. There's some variable of things of unknown, whack-a-mole that you're going to have to deal with in the future, but it's it's enough to make the decision to go through. And you understand what that downside risk, is it going to bankrupt me? Is this deal going to, I'm going to lose investors money? Those are things that I would maybe shy away from. And so it becomes case by case to what you discover during that due diligence time period. So I'm curious, with all that said, the whole hard money has become just a, a massive part of this environment at this point, right? So I think the most we were at was a million hard day one, uh, and a million after you know 30 days or something like that. How does that come into play for you? That's why I'm not buying a lot of multifamily deals because <laughs> it is, uh, I, I have a hard time getting over that. Why I love distressed assets and when the, the market's declining, you're kind of calling the shots on the terms. And so when I look at it is I typically do not invest in the things that everyone else is investing into because I cannot structure the deal that's beneficial to me. Not to say that I haven't done apartment deals. I tend to do very heavy value add, like we bought an office building, a 10-story office building that we're converting to apartments. To me, I had more time to structure the deal that was appropriate. Some of the things that we were able to discover was able to negotiate some of those pricing. But then if you're in a competitive environment, when you're like coming in hard, like you have to have really, really good systems in place before you can feel comfortable to going hard on those types of money. And to me, it is an exercise of who's willing to take less money in the market and especially in the multifamily space. And then you're making very significant and calculated risk that you're going to get that deal and with certain certainty. And so I would say, you know, I would be doing the work before I was in escrow going into and, you know, literally doing knocking doors, show up, do the things, doing call, everything. And that's what I say, doing the homework before you put it into contract. When you have that opportunity to make those decisions and you need to move quickly, when someone brings an opportunity and you're like, that's 25% under market value, I'll move quickly. I feel more comfortable coming in and putting money hard because I have very intrinsic knowledge to that particular market or asset type or whatever. And so I can move quickly because I've done my homework ahead of time. Hi, Jake Harris. The book is called Catching Knives, A Guide to Investing in Distressed Commercial Real Estate. Jake, how can people connect with you? So the easiest way that I'm most active is catchknives.com, my website. I'm also Instagram, jake.realestate. On the website, Catch Knives, we have a newsletter, we have you know the book link, we have courses, we have a lot of other things that information is available to people that are interested in learning more about what we're doing, and that's the most appropriate and fastest way to connect with us. That's awesome. Jake, thanks very much for coming to the show today. Hey, thank you, Michael. Garrett? To me, two takeaways. Number one is really stick to your due diligence checklist. And we have one also in our DealMaker certification. It's a three, four-week checklist. And it's so important that you don't cut corners because it's a lot of work. It's kind of, I mean, it's kind of a pain in the butt work to do. And then sometimes, like Jake said, we don't really want to know the answer. Like we'd rather just, you know, keep the wall covered and not see what's behind it. So that's number one is don't cut corners. But number two, and I think this is equally important, 
we have to learn how to live with risk. Because if you think you're going to discover a property that has nothing wrong with it, that's like it checks all the boxes, it just doesn't exist. Therefore, every single property you're going to look at, there's going to be something that bothers you. And the question you have to ask yourself is that something I can manage? Can I live with that risk? Or is that big enough for me to walk away from that deal? So those are two two things. And that's, that's the way I kind of view due diligence. I don't know. What were some of your takeaways? Yeah, I think I think just having that, I like how he said that he has kind of that spidey sense going on, where he's always paranoid about what he's going to run into and trying to get the full story as to why they're selling, uncovering stones. You're going to know pretty quickly when you get into a deal, if what the type of seller this is, if they're trying to hide things, if they're, there's something just doesn't feel right. And in those instances, you want to dig into as much as possible, including interviewing everyone that you possibly can that's been in contact with the site, trying to pull the maintenance guys aside, talk to them on their own, whatever you can. And so I think his, his assessment of that was absolutely correct. There's another purpose of due diligence that we didn't even talk about, and that is to really uncover opportunities. And yes, you're looking for things that are going to kick you in the butt, but you're also looking for ways you can increase rents. Uh, in particular, when you're doing the same thing with comps, right? You're actually going by the comps and you're seeing what they're doing, or you're even talking to to the tenants and really uncovering, well, what can you do to not only improve the quality of the living there, but you can actually do to raise the rent. So, so many different ways that you can do that through due diligence. It's the most fun part for me to go and really shop comps, talk to the market, and you interview other managers. You can start to see the holes. So I can go to our site that we're purchasing and they never answer the phones or the manager doesn't know what's going on. And there's a lot of things that are that are happening and you're like, man, I, if we just got a good manager in here, this might turn around. You go next door where the rents are $400 more. Oh, they just have, they have a nicer uh, product that they're putting out. The manager's great. Everything's different. When I approach this site there, right there, you know that there's an opportunity. And at that point, it's just a math problem. It's like, okay, how many of these can I actually rent at a higher rate if I fix these things to add the value to it? All of our deals that we're doing, most people at this stage in the game, it's all an income play. And so you, when you get out in the market and you get to kind of go around and see, hey, how are these people increasing their revenues, creating a better user experience for people that live there? If we can replicate that, I bet we can do just as good as them, hopefully better, but I'm not going to even underwrite to better. I'm just going to think, hey, maybe we can match them or do worse and on our underwriting get there. A lot of nuances here, guys, uh, a lot of complexity. It really helps to work with a more experienced advisor or mentor. So again, check out our mentoring program and work one-on-one with a syndicator who's got a lot of wisdom and can look over your, your shoulder. Uh, if you don't really want to be an active investor like we love to do, we love due diligence. But if you don't love due diligence, that's fine. You just want to invest with the best. That would be us, Nighthawk Equity. Check, on, check us out at nighthawkequity.com. Click the join button and you can schedule a call with us and talk to us about one of our upcoming investment opportunities. So with that, do good stuff, get in the game, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblanc.com vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault. 